Well, I got to confess, right on the front end here, after all of the joy and jubilation, this passage is going to be tough. So let me just prepare you. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. You may even wonder, like, did those guys talk about what we were doing this Sunday and <laughs> where we were going in the Word? Um, I think it's going to make great sense. The Lord is kind to orchestrate our, our time together. So we're in Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to just do the first three verses. And it's just three verses, but I want you to know it is a mountain of bad news. Think Everest. It's big and it's hard. But it will be the best bad news you have ever heard in your life. For some of us, it's going to be a gracious reminder that we need to hear. And then there's some others among us that uh, this will be a very sobering warning. Either way, there's great benefit. This passage was included in Paul's letter to the Ephesians with great intent. And ultimately, the intent was to change their lives, which means it's the same intent for us. These three verses are in this letter right where they land so that you and I might change, not just for today, not just for this year, but for all of eternity. And I, I guess I feel like I should say, all of us are going to react in some form or fashion to these words. And I want to invite you to be as receptive as you could possibly be to whatever it is God has for you today. I think it will change your life. So, Back to the bad news. Paul says you were dead. Right on the heels, and I feel like this right after our beautiful choir, <laughs> right on the heels of Paul's song of praise in verses 3 through 14. Remember that in chapter 1? We've been in that for a while. And then his uh, model prayer. Right after all of that, you're dead. Chapter 1, packed with encouragement, blessing, adoption, grace, redemption, forgiveness, inheritance. And then he's praying for love and illumination and hope and power. Dead. Why, after all that celebration and inspiration, does Paul start this chapter? Again, remember, there weren't chapters and verses and all that when this letter was first written. But after all of that jubilation and inspiration in those first passages, why go here? What's Paul doing? I can only assume that he thought the Ephesians had forgotten the terminal condition that they were in prior to 
trusting in Christ. And then let's be honest. The further you get away from your conversion, think with me. I've been a Christian a long time, 40 years. The further you get away, the easier it is to forget just how bad off you were. Notice I didn't say how bad you were because this isn't about behavior. It's how bad off you and I were before we knew the grace of God. Paul must have thought that they're losing sight of that. I want to celebrate all this good work that God has done, but we can't fully appreciate that if we don't remember this. Most people think of their spiritual condition, if you just ask anybody on the street, in terms of degrees of goodness or badness. And Paul's categories are actually way simpler. (laughs) Dead or alive, which is it? You can't be kind of either. Spiritually speaking, you're either dead or alive. So what is the truth about the human condition in its natural state? Paul's answer, you probably know it by now, dead. Not ill, not injured, not exhausted, not impaired, not uneducated, not limited, not just off track. Let me hear you say it. Thank you. Yes. Now, generally speaking, we all know what dead is, right? We use words like deceased, lifeless, departed, passed away because we see it all around us. We've all been to a funeral, so we, we get it. We know what that means physically. But that can't be what Paul is talking about here because he's writing to living people, right? So when he's saying you were dead, he obviously can't mean they were dead physically. So what did he mean? What did he mean by you are or were dead? The reality of death first entered the human experience as a result of the disobedience of Adam and Eve in the garden. See Genesis chapter 3. In fact, read all three of those chapters to get the full context of what happened there. But despite the warning of the Lord to, to avoid, stay away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... The first couple chose to eat the forbidden fruit, right? We've heard that story. And then as a result, sin infected all of creation just like God said it would. He said, if you eat from the tree, you will surely die. Now, the interesting thing about Adam and Eve is they didn't die physically right then and there. And as a curious reader, we, we probably would wonder, didn't God say they would die? And, but, but, but they didn't. 
Well, maybe death meant far more than just your heart stopping. Maybe it meant a condition that would affect everything, even all of eternity. At the end of chapter 3 in Genesis, we're told that God drove them out of the garden. I think that's a clue to help us understand what death really is. In a sense, when God drove them out, it was as if he said, you're dead to me. He created a separation, an alienation, a distance, because he's holy and they're not, and therefore they can't be together. So it is a spiritual death. Now, Adam and Eve, eventually they would die, and so would everybody else after them physically. But more importantly, they experienced spiritual death immediately. And that became the condition for them. Both aspects of death, physical and spiritual, ultimately infected all of creation and all of humanity and still does even to today. Romans 5.12 explains this. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So we should probably start by saying there are no exceptions. If you are breathing today, then you have been. You may not be today, but you have been at some point in your life spiritually dead. Do you see how? If you get that, if you accept that, if you embrace that reality, do you see how sweet it is to be made alive? Paul says here, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. There is an association with that first couple and what they did with what God told them. But if you think about that, they were the Ephesians, shut out from God, just like Adam and Eve, shut in by willful disobedience. They were estranged, enslaved, imprisoned, if you look at other places in Scripture. We'll call them the walking dead, physically alive, spiritually dead. To say it another way, we are all naturally on death row to begin with. That's how we start out life, confined to the consequences of our brokenness and to the circumstances of life in a broken world. We obviously exist in that state or that condition physically, right? but we do so absent of genuine spiritual life. Later in chapter 2, we'll get to this eventually, but Paul will describe it this way. Separated from Christ, 
having no hope and without God in the world. So what does death row look like? How would Paul describe that? That's exactly what he does in the next two verses. He wants us to understand. He wanted them to understand this is what life was like before you were set free. Here's the natural you. Beyond being spiritually dead, here's two words you could write down. You were depraved and you were deceived. Depraved and deceived. Um, Depraved simply means to be corrupt. Think about when Adam and Eve were in the garden prior to disobeying God, perfect fellowship with him, innocence, no shame, no doubt, no discouragement, no fear, just sweet fellowship with God and with each other. Sin corrupted that, and they became depraved. They also were deceived. That led to sin, but then that led to even more deception. Um, They walked in confusion about what is true and what is not. They, They took the bait that the serpent gave them as to the character, the nature, the goodness of God. And so they would always wonder about that going forward. That's what was introduced into their original condition. They were also defenseless against the three enemies of our soul. The world, the devil, and our flesh. In fact, this is the classic passage that presents those three enemies in their greatest clarity. You could also write down James 4. That's another place where you'll find these three enemies mentioned. Here's the natural you on death row. Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way which seems right to a man. I mean, there's just something in you that knows that it knows that it knows this is the way. That way leads to death. See, when it's you and I thinking our own thoughts, trusting in our own instincts, believing that we we really do see things as they really are, all by ourselves, That is death. That is destruction. That is 100% loss, no gain. Even our best instincts and inclinations apart from God lead us astray. Like we sing that song, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, there it is. We adopt self-made strategies for navigating life in a sin-wrecked world. And then those strategies end up aligning us with the strategies of the world. That's, That's where Paul goes first. 
according to Paul, our independent death march begins with following the course of the world. In your outline, I call it sleeping with the enemy. So what is the world? He's not talking again about a physical structure, although again, creation is tainted by sin. He's talking about a secular, autonomous organization of humanity that exists to defy the authority of God. That is the way our world is structured and organized. And I know, guys, I am, I am the biggest optimist in the world. And I would like to think of the world differently. But Paul will not allow that. All of humanity collectively is opposed to God and all of the systems and all of the structures. This isn't a conspiracy theory. This is reality. It is all opposed to God. And maybe in just the simplest form, it's we're going to do things our way instead of God's way. In fact, we don't even care what God's way is. That is the world. certainly doesn't point people to God. I mean, think about what the world celebrates. Human achievement, human potential, human wisdom. That's what the world celebrates, applauds and rewards. Here's what Paul says about the world in Romans 1. They suppress the truth. They're futile in their thinking. They worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Spiritually dead people are attracted to that. They are enticed by that idea that you're great, you're wonderful, you're smart, you're talented, you're beautiful, you're all of those things. You don't need God. Spiritually dead people are prone to adopt the values and practices of the world. The picture here of following the course of the world is like drifting with the current of a river. Dead people can't swim, so they float and they drift. That's the picture of following the course of the world. Now, that delusion or deception that's, you know, promoted and celebrated by the world is promoted by the prince of the power of the air. That's where Paul goes next. And he says, we didn't just follow the world, we followed the prince of the power of the air. Letter B, that means we're under, in our natural state, under the influence of Satan. He is the prince that's mentioned here, and he is the ruler of the temporal domain of the world. Thinking about our idea of being incarcerated, he's the warden of the prison. 1 John 5.19 says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 
Once again, we're sophisticated, we're smart. That sounds like old wives' tales or something. Paul says, you better believe this is as real as anything you've ever known in your life. Now, make no mistake, Jesus is in absolute control. He is in no way subject to any authority that Satan might have. But Satan has been allowed to lead humanity's rebellion against God. And that's all he's committed to. 100%. He is, as Paul says, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So that's another title for humanity. The sons of disobedient. Disobedience. Disobedient to who? God, in rebellion, in defiance against him. So Satan has authority over the rebellious atmosphere of the world, and that rebellious atmosphere fuels or energizes the stubborn, independent spirit of humanity. Now, let me just pause for a second. Take a deep breath. Okay. If we don't understand this, then why in the world would we ever cry out for a Savior? Like, you, you gotta get this. Otherwise, you'll think you're just fine. I mean, several commentators and pastors and all that talk about the idea of, you know, some of us will say, well, generally speaking, you know, men and women are pretty good. And honestly, if we just encourage them and point them in the right direction and give them a slap on the back, they'll be fine. They'll end up in a good place eventually. Or others will say, you know, there is something wrong. We're not quite sure what it is. The diagnosis is still out. But if we could just educate and encourage and guide people, then they would get to a better place. Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Dead. Absolutely terminal. You need for God to do for you what you could never and can never do for yourself. That will always be true of you and of me in our natural condition. Now, the good news, I, I really, I'm, I'm so tempted to try and blunt this a little bit just to cheer you up, but I'm just telling you, the good news is he has done it. We're going to celebrate that next week with Jeff's passage, but we will appreciate that all the more if we really get this. So, sleeping with the enemy, under the influence of Satan. And then these same people, think about your story. We're not only influenced from the outside, we're influenced from within. Paul says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. So we've, we've seen the world, we've seen the devil, and now we see the flesh. 
John Mark Comer describes flesh as our base, primal, animalistic drives for self-gratification, survival, power, and control. If you were to look at the animal kingdom, you would see what utter survival looks like and what instinct looks like. Animals aren't weighing the pros and cons of whatever it is they do. If they're hungry, they eat. If they're tired, they sleep. If it's winter and they're in the hibernation, they're headed to the cave. But we, we actually think about things. We weigh our options. We consider possibilities. And that is the place where our flesh, that part of us that is and always will be opposed to God until we are completely made new, that is the flesh. That is what leads us astray internally. We are naturally consumed with self-gratification. I think that's where we started in Ephesians. We talked about the allure of the self. In Galatians 5, Paul writes this about the flesh. He says it produces sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. Now, (laughs) some of you may hear that list and go, wow, that's really bad. I don't think I'm in that category. It doesn't matter because he puts this little phrase right at the end of that description. And things like these. (laughs) So if you're able to avoid any of those horrible sins, you have an infinite list of ways in which your flesh rebels against God Almighty. He's writing about you and he's writing about me in our natural condition. Life on death row. Romans 8, 5 through 8, Paul says, those who live according to the flesh, here's what they do. They set their minds on the things of the flesh. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? And to set the mind on the flesh, here's our word again, it's death. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are of the flesh cannot please God. The walking dead relentlessly seek to satisfy the insatiable appetite for mental, physical, and emotional pleasure. And here's what the enemy does. He whispers in your ear, it's okay. God understands. 
it's really not that big of a deal. You'll be okay. Just let it ride. Get back to God tomorrow. And our flesh says, okay. <laughs> right. It doesn't take a lot of coaxing. It's as natural as breathing. We all do that. Our flesh does that. Because it's the most anyone can do apart from God. Like, what else can you live for? So, review. What's life like on spiritual death road? Deceived, depraved, and defenseless against the three enemies of the soul, the world, the devil, and our flesh. Putting it all together, Paul says, you were dead. And then he ends with, you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Did I, did I mention that there was a mountain of bad news in this passage? Children of wrath conveys a sense of destiny. We use words like condemned or doomed or hopeless or done for. I... I I call this passage the dirge. Has anybody here heard of the dirge before? It's a song or a hymn of grief or lamentation, especially one intended to accompany funeral or memorial rites. It's a slow, solemn, and mournful piece of music. And frankly, in our culture, we'd rather not listen to this music. Right? We want just something happy and upbeat. Play me another one. Paul says, listen, you will not enjoy, appreciate, and apply the song of praise if you don't ever sing the dirge. Paul knew that hearing the dirge is essential to having a deliverance. To be saved, um, to be set free from the confinement of death row, it's a real possibility. But to do that, we must abandon all faith in ourselves and then abandon ourselves to Christ. That is Paul's intent with these three verses. He literally wants to demolish, to disintegrate even the slightest shred of faith that you might have in you. See, if you can be emptied of that, you will be ready to receive the gift of grace and mercy from your Savior. I like to think of the dirge as the opening verses of Christ's song of deliverance. Catch this. This, is, this was so encouraging to me. Do you guys remember that scene where Jesus is basically announcing his ministry? 
walks into a synagogue. Everybody's in there. People have kind of, they know him. They know of him. They don't really know him. And this is his opportunity to say, here we go. You guys remember what verse he quotes? Write down Isaiah 61.1. And I want you to hear it as an inmate on death row. Jesus reads these words. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord God has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Those were Jesus' first words about his ministry. He came to set us free. From the world, from the devil, and from our very own flesh. Next week, Jeff is going to talk about God making us alive. And the way I like to think about this is, I was in that prison. I was on death row. And I was content to live there. And God was so kind to show me an open door that I had nothing to do with. I'm just walking around the cell, eating their food, sleeping on my cot, just trying to enjoy whatever I can. And one day, I looked up, and the door was open. And he said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Life, not death. Some of you in this room are still in prison. You have never come to a place in your life where you said, you know what? On my own, I'm dead. And not just physically, not just temporally, eternally, spiritually dead. You've never come to that place. I pray that today is the day that you cry out to God and say, save me from myself. And he promises, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a promise. So, so for, let's think like a so what. Some of you need to cry out. Some of you, man, I can relate to this. Some of you have been set free. You've lived in freedom for some period of time. And then you went back in the cell. Same message. There's no life in there. It may feel familiar. But Jesus would say again, come on out. Have life. Live free. And then others among you, you're fighting the good fight. You're living in freedom. You're walking 
dependently upon Christ. But it's hard, isn't it? It is a fight every day. Let this be an encouragement to you that you are walking in life, newness of life. Stay at it. So let me give you an opportunity. Ask the Lord to use the dirge today in your life. Move you to a place of change, whatever that might be. And honestly, our staff, our elders, let us help any way we can. If you need somebody to talk to, if you've got questions, if you're wrestling with some stuff, let let us know. Let us help. Take a moment and uh, ask the Lord to show you what's next for you in response to this message. And then I'll pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful, as hard as it is to hear, we're grateful for the bad news that causes us to revel in the good news. Lord, I pray that these words today would not cause us to be discouraged, but would honestly embolden us that we truly would walk in newness of life and we would offer that life to the people around us who are still doing life on death row. Lord, cause your grace to abound in us. says that it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Lord, help us to live free for your glory and for our good. Thank you, Jesus, for setting us free. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.